welcome to another episode of Nashville Anthems, dissecting 80s and 90s country music. And many thanks to Yellow Jacket Road for providing the theme music for this episode. I'm your faithful host, Melton McMainerberry, and thanks for meeting up with me today. On Nashville Anthems, we honor our prearranged commitment to examine 80s and 90s country music inductively, with the long-term plan of developing a robust understanding of what it is that makes this era and genre of music work so particularly well. And today, we'll gaze at it through the nostalgic eyes of Colin Ray's early 90s hit, Love Me. So, if you haven't already, and maybe it's been a minute or two since you really listened to this one, why don't you go ahead and pause this podcast now and give Love Me a close listen or two. And now, let's get into it. We'll start as we typically do by giving credit where credit is due, with major assists from Wikipedia and Billboard. Love Me was written by a couple of Nashville hitmakers, Skip Ewing, who also co-wrote past Nashville Anthem Selection, You Had Me From Hello with Kenny Chesney, and Max T. Barnes. That's Max T. Barnes, mind you, not to be confused with his father, another well-known hitmaker, Max D. Barnes. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we're expected to keep Max T. Barnes and Max D. Barnes distinct in our heads. You know, I actually made that mistake in a past episode. I went back and fixed it as I was preparing this one, but Max D. Barnes co-wrote Vince Gill's Look At Us, the song that beat Love Me out for CMA Song of the Year in 1992. And in so doing, he beat not himself, but his son out for that award. Mind blown. Anyway, both Barneses wrote several songs you know, with Max T also co-writing past Nashville Anthem selection, Diamond Rio's How Your Love Makes Me Feel. So what happened to Love Me after Ewing and T. Barnes wrote it? Well, Colin Ray recorded it, of course, in 1991. It found its way to Ray's debut studio album entitled All I Can Be, which was produced by Jerry Fuller and John Hobbs and was released as Ray's second single later that year. The song became Colin Ray's first of four U.S. country number ones right at the beginning of 1992, unseating no less a superstar and song than Reba McIntyre with a great one for My Broken Heart, and then being overtaken three weeks later by another great one, Tracy Lawrence with Sticks and Stones. I mentioned that 1992 was a great year for country music, folks. Well, anyway, in short, Love Me has remained Colin Ray's signature song ever since. I don't think anyone is going to argue with me on that point. I mean, Colin Ray has recorded some great music. Little Rock, anyone? But this is likely the song he'll always be best known for. With Colin Ray, it always felt to me like he spent the rest of the 90s trying to shake the balladeer typecast, especially after In This Life also went to number one. Anyone else remember it like that? Look up the video for I Want You Bad and That Ain't Good if you want to get a taste of what I'm talking about. It's just a touch forced. But don't worry, Colin, if you're listening, you're in good company on that. <coughs> Vince Gill. <coughs> and anyway, there are worse songs than Love Me to be permanently associated with, right? This is a nice little song. So let's get into it. Let's work through what at least I'm hearing in Love Me that makes this song what it is. There's a lot of what we talked about with How Do I Help You Say Goodbye in this song. In that episode, we talked about how that song and how country music more broadly can do heartfelt heartache. And that's definitely happening here as well, as it did in Two Teardrops. But here I want to look at that idea from a slightly different viewpoint. Love Me is what I'm going to call gentle sentimental. So what do I mean by that? In terms of both sound and lyrics, Love Me is a song that would have fit right in on Alabama's Christmas album that I talked about a few episodes ago. It's dripping with that specific brand of bittersweetness that family nostalgia can bring. 
And similarly to Christmas and Dixie, that's true in the lyrics, but not only in the lyrics. Great songs don't just convey an emotion, they wrap you in a specific one. Let's look at how the musical arrangement of Love Me does just that. Now here's something we've seen a number of times, two teardrops again being a fine example, as is on the other hand, it's what I'm going to call a pseudo-sparse arrangement. Before you re-listen to Love Me for this episode, assume you did, you really should do that folks, don't just start by listening to me drone on about it, listen with fresh ears and see what you're hearing first. Anyway, but if you just thought back on this song, let your rose-colored nostalgia glasses shade the way you remember this song, how did you picture in your ear the instrumental arrangement? Definitely, you heard the finger-picked acoustic guitar that forms the intro and accompaniment for the first verse, right? What might have been kind of stuff. I read a note my grandma wrote back in 1923. It's a great intro, by the way. One of those that gets the audience applauding after just the first few notes, which is so memorable and recognizable. But did you remember how much this song fills out in the second verse? But I loved your grandma so. We had this crazy plan to meet. And run away together. The first verse is doubled, so the instrumentation fills out before even the first chorus hits. And that effect of sparse acoustic instrumentation at the beginning that quickly fills out is fairly common in not just 80s and 90s country music, but really Western music in general. It's kind of the formula. But the interesting thing for me is how this song feels like, or at least imprints itself on our memories as staying pretty sparse the whole time. But it really doesn't do that. If you get there before I do, don't give up on me. We talked about this effect again in the two teardrops and on the other hand episodes. On the other hand is actually a really strong comparison because remember in that episode how we talked about the arrangement filling out actually pretty jarringly between the first verse and the first chorus? On that hand, there's no reason why it's wrong. But on the other hand, there's a golden band. The first verse being similar to Love Me's, except that it adds some light bass guitar to the acoustic. We haven't gotten to what might have been yet, but it's quite similar in this too, between the first chorus and the second verse. One might have Listen to the instrumental difference as Love Me transitions from the first verse to the second. But I loved your grandma so We had this crazy plan to meet Hear that? It instantly goes from just a single finger-picked acoustic guitar to, and you have to listen pretty closely for this, but it's there, a second acoustic guitar gets added to the mix. One is panned to the left and one is panned to the right. We had this crazy plan to meet and run away together. How about this one? If someone had asked me if Love Me has an electric piano in it, I would have lost a bet. Not only does it have it, though, it's second only to acoustic guitar in terms of prominence in the instrumental mix. Give this a listen. 
Did you remember that electric piano was in this song? Don't give up on me I'll meet you when my chores are through I had to say it's of its time in 1991, too. This was still the pop era of synth drums and electric piano, especially on ballads. Need some evidence? I should find this pretty interesting because in our previous Colin Ray episode on 1999's I Can Still Feel You, we talked about just how of its time pop that song was, and we really are seeing something similar here. Although the fact that, above all, the song is clearly acoustic guitar driven grounds it much more in traditional folk country, a la some of the Steve Warner stuff we've looked at from, maybe ironically, later in the 90s. Let's just round out the instrumentation, though. In addition to the acoustic guitar and electric piano, the third verse has some barely there organ, which I also would have lost a bet about. It's subtle, and it's a nice touch to give the song a little variety and actually darken the texture up a bit as the subject matter shifts the balance a little more toward the bitter side of bittersweet. Listen for it down in the mix, pan toward the right. In the doorway of a church where me and Grandpa stopped to pray And finally, the rhythm section consists of unobtrusive bass guitar and nice, light percussion. If you get there before I do, don't give up on me. I'll meet you when my chores are through. Very much non-driving, non-assertive percussion here, standing in strong contrast to what we heard in Terry Clark's Better Things to Do. In particular, notice how the syncopated, anticipated chord changes in Love Me are not emphasized by the percussion. But as he said these words to her, his eyes filled up with tears. So do you feel how gentle all that is? The guitar is gently finger-picked instead of aggressively strummed. The electric piano is light and distant. Sounds like it's being played on a dream rather than on a stage. The organ is, again, barely audible, more suggested than actually played. And the rhythm is light and almost trance-like. It's like all the instrumentalists are playing the song on autopilot while they sit and think wistfully about yesteryear. Such that even when the arrangement fills out, like we talked about, and becomes, well, a bit late 80s, early 90s cheesier and more sentimental, it's all done with a super light touch that I think is really important to keep the song grounded. I know I'd never seen him cry in all my 15 years. This is basically the opposite of the musical feel of I Can Still Feel You, which, as we discussed in that episode, was basically always in fifth gear, taking turns on two wheels, that type of thing. I can still feel you just as close as skin every now and then. Love Me, in contrast, eases in and then keeps moving along less by will than by fate. If you get there before I do, don't get... Again, the comparison with two teardrops is quite strong. These are songs that willingly drift through the ups and downs of life, staring out of windows and taking it all in. It's the farmer philosophy thing we've talked about, of being fully aware of and accepting of 
your limited ability to control your fortune. Actually, let's sit on that rural philosophy idea for a bit longer. There may be some mileage here, because as we've seen, this music is all about its, if you will, rurality. First off, how do you know this song is rural? What are some of the things it says? Well, notice the arranged meeting this future grandma and grandpa were supposed to have was not at a street corner or in a hotel lobby. It was at what? Is it a tree? It was 700 fence posts from your place to mine, right? Rural people don't meet in parking lots. They meet at trees. At least in whatever version of rural 1923 this narrator is remembering his grandpa to have remembered. Here are the layers of nostalgia there. Don't miss that, by the way. This is a grown-up telling us a story from when he was 15 years old that itself contained a story which the only living witness recited from something like a 50-year-old memory. How reliable should we take this narrator to be? But back to the rural thing. Notice when future grandma would meet future grandpa. After what? After she finished her chores. As a daughter, you don't have to live on a small family farm to have daily household responsibilities. There's a strong implication here that she does, especially by her choice of the word chores. Also notice the second stage of their grand plan together. After they've run away together, where would they get married? The first town they came to. Not a city, but a town. And the implication there is that they weren't in the town when they started off. So here we are, once again, in some partially real, partially imagined version of, in this case, early 20th century rural America. And that's fine. That's a pretty typical setting for these songs we've looked at. But one specific way you see that framework drive the action of the song is in this kind of tough guy, silent farmer thing. When the narrator says that he'd never before seen his grandfather cry. Very conservative, very old school, this almost heroic idea that real men, as a rule, don't cry. And therefore, when they do, whatever made them cry must be a really big deal. It's the deep numbness that's a rural stereotype, the serious version of some of the funny simpleton stuff we've been seeing in songs like How Your Love Makes Me Feel, Bubba Shot the Jukebox, and John Deere Green. Beyond even the cuteness of something like Deeper Than the Holler, and into the stoic heaviness of Two Teardrops. Because a farmer knows his fortune is tied to uncontrollable cosmic forces, right? So this music isn't shy about employing that idea analogically to life itself, especially end of life, as we've seen. And here that stoic resignation is definitely held up as heroic. I mean, this is the narrator's grandfather. It might as well be he walked on water. So there's nary a hint of irony or criticism of the stereotypically strong rural lack of emotion that the grandfather breaks out of for the first time in this most extreme of circumstances. By the way, shout out to what has to be one of the saddest country songs ever recorded, Reba McIntyre's Greatest Man I Never Knew, for giving us a different, challenging perspective on this same idea. But let's get back to this gentle, sentimental idea. And again, this is how I'm seeing the way the song balances slightly competing forces of sentimentality on the one hand, with believability and relatability on the other. That's a hard balance to achieve, right? I mean, I think this is a lot of why this music fascinates me so much. Where is that sweet spot? How do you do a song about losing a lifelong lover and friend without turning it into a Hallmark movie? What does it sound like not to go far enough with sentimentality? What does it sound like to go too far? And what does it sound like to hit that happy medium we might call the good stuff? Well, I think the first verse and chorus of Love Me is safely in that zone, But I do want to ask the question, does the second verse of Love Me take it over the top? 
And why would I ask that? Well, the first verse is just telling a nice little story, right? Wide-eyed kids almost breaking free of their conservative insular culture. Crazy talk. All told with a bit of a chuckle and eye roll with an implied, but I guess it all worked out fine anyway, didn't it? Wink at the camera and at the grandson. Cute. But the second verse does that thing. It takes a simple story from the first verse that's limited in its scope and applies it a little more broadly and deeply to life itself, especially stages of life, and most especially, and ultimately, to death. That's a country thing we've definitely seen and talked about, especially in our episode on Holes in the Floor of Heaven, and it's how country deals with death. The shared DNA with two teardrops and how can I help you say goodbye here is again quite strong. In both of those cases, death is the ultimate in a series of life milestones that are tied together, and this is key, by local details that build through those stages, often in lessons or in metaphors. And how can I help you say goodbye? It was how learning to say goodbye to a childhood friend helps us peacefully deal with saying goodbyes to loved ones later in life. In Two Teardrops, it was the idea that recognizing and appreciating the cyclical nature of life and time more generally gives us the necessary context to accept the inevitability of death as part of that cycle. Again, that's the Stoke Farmer outlook on life. Here in Love Me, it's the idea that this certain thread of alignment ran through this couple's long, faithful life together. I'm going to name for this. It's when a final chorus changes meaning not by changing lyrics, but by being given a different context by the preceding verse or bridge or whatever. Because that definitely happens here, right? The very speaker of the letter that the chorus narrates changes from the first to the second chorus, with the grandfather saying back to the grandmother her own words from the beginning of their life together. How does the meaning of the letter change? It's still about a meeting place, right? But it's no longer a rural oak tree. Now it's a meeting in an ultimate sense and in an ultimate place, in heaven. The promise remains to be faithful to this meeting, even if there has to be a wait. And out come the tissues as the meaning of chores changes, from obviously quite literal chores in the first verse, as we discussed, to a metonym for life itself duties. Whatever it is that God has Grandpa complete while on earth, he's confident he'll see her when that work is done. Move over, Brad Paisley and Andy Griffith. Skip Ewing, one of the Max Barneses, and Colin Ray all beat you to it. So, how does Love Me manage to make that move without going over the top on the sentimentality and transitioning from making you smile to making you roll your eyes and laugh? Or does it? I want to hear from you on this one. Does love me stay in the sweet spot or does it take a bridge too far? And why? From my point of view, I do think it manages to stay grounded enough not to overdo the sentimentality thing. And I mean, to me, that's the key to it. The grounding. Another shout out to my defunct King of the Hill podcast, by the way. We talked about the concept of grounding a lot on that podcast. Because I think relatability and groundedness are strongly related. And Like we've seen so many times on this podcast, relatability is a strong ingredient of 80s and 90s country music, and it's usually achieved through specific lyrical details. Things like the age of the narrator, 15 years, the year, 1923, the tree, and notice how the letter was nailed to the tree. Something about that very specific detail, nailed to the tree. Grandpa's coat pocket, how he always kept the letter there, right? The very words, grandma and grandpa, that the narrator uses. The affection implied by those names. The visual in that second verse, we can see what the narrator sees in his mind's eye and his memory as he reads the letter in the church doorway. 
So none of it huge, right? In fact, you list it out like that, and it feels a little, you know, ho-hum. But that's just it. Songs like this manage to nail real life in all its smallness and all its mundaneness, even when things get locally big like this, always keeping the context strong enough to contain all the life events going on inside of it. All of our life's journey can be summed up in this short letter that Grandma nailed to the tree 50 years ago. All right, now, that's all fine. That's what the song is doing. But why does it work? I want to point out here how well the elements of Love Me work specifically as a combination. It's like this. Colin Ray's voice works really well with this melody. This melody works really well with these lyrics, and these lyrics work well with this instrumental and harmonic setting. Let's briefly touch on those things. First, yes, let's not miss an opportunity to highlight how Colin Ray nails the vocals on this song. This rural sentimentality, something about his voice fits it really well. Grandma's daddy didn't like me none, but I loved your grandma so. We talked a lot in the last Colin Ray episode about what I think of as vocal camps in country music, how most of Ray's contemporary male singers are unabashed honky-tonkers, channeling in partner and whole George Jones and or George Strait for all they can. But that's not really Colin Ray. I mean, first off, stylistically, Love Me is definitely not honky-tonk. There's no steel guitar, no fiddle, no twang, no Bakersfield, none of that. This is much more in the vein of some of the great pop country of the 70s and 80s, uh, Alabama, for example, than in the vein of 80s and 90s neo-traditional honky-tonk. And that's certainly the case vocally, too. Again, as we've discussed, vocally, Colin Ray is in the smooth tenor camp of Steve Warner and Vince Gill. I won't belabor that point because... Well, I already belabored it in the I Can Still Feel You episode, but you can hear it, right? Two teardrops, pretty little Adriana, it's in that family. And we both wiped a teardrop from our face. Oh, the ocean's a little bit bigger tonight. You sure have a pretty smile. It sure has been a while. And this is what it says. If you get there before I do. And that smooth vocal timbre and delivery serves this melody well. So Love Me is in the key of C major, and the melody dances around in this range a lot, up around the E and F above middle C, a range in which a smooth tenor like Colin Ray sounds really nice. I don't know how long I'll be. It's a pleasant and effortless setting for his voice. That mimics that recognizable acoustic guitar intro we talked about earlier. The hook at the end, that's just going down a C scale, starting with the F above middle C, down to the B below middle C, and resolving on, you guessed it, middle C. Yeah, notice how this melody flows. A lot of movement up and down the C major scale in this melody. No gritty blues tones, nothing like that. Just an easy, kids sing-songy journey around the C scale. Here are a couple of highlights, and these are really the vocal hooks in the song. There's the get there before I do line that starts the chorus. If you get there before I do. That's up a C pentatonic scale starting with G. Those are all G's, A's, C's, D's, and E's. 
And that high E sounds so nice in Conrad's voice, right? If you get there before I do. It has that subtle hint or major reassurance to temper that doubt that the reader of the letter might be having. The whole melody flowing naturally and predictably along a C scale rather than challenging us harmonically. It's like Grandpa has plenty on his mind right now. Let's go easy on the music theory, okay? I highlight one more bit of nice melody at the end of the chorus. This one sounds like one of those uncontrollable forces of nature formed it out of the ether or something. It just feels so natural. And between now and then, till I see you again. That's just two walk-ups along the C scale. One from A to D. And the other from B to E. And between now and then, till I see you again. The latter of the two, by the way, is over the only harmonic curveball this song has. Together, that whole thing is over this chord progression. It's F, G, then E over G sharp, that's the curveball, then A minor. The F, G, and A minor are all standard stuff, but that E over G sharp definitely adds drama, even some musical uncertainty to the moment of the most lyrical suspense, the key thing on grandma and grandpa's minds, seeing each other again. And between now and then, till I see you again. The separation is real and it's musically acknowledged. But then it's very quickly reassured and resolved. Back to the tonic note and chord with two simple words. Love me. Alright, this is kind of a hard episode to stop. I guess it's evidenced by the length, right? I have to admit, I lost the outline a bit there at the end, but I think all the points supporting this idea of Ray's vocals suiting the melody, the melody suiting the lyrics, and the lyrics sitting well in this musical setting are all in there. And this one is a song which is similar to how I struggled with Killing Time. Everything just works so well together that it's hard to break the elements down without feeling like you're not doing justice to the whole package. But, for better or for worse, let's go on back inside and put Colin Ray's Love Me to Rest as we find out what song we'll be meeting up to talk about on the next episode of Nashville Anthems. To that end, I'm going to pull up Satellite Radio's 80s and 90s country station right now and see what's playing. Well, we have a cover. This is Travis Tritt's cover of The Eagles' Take It Easy. The Eagles definitely have the definitive version of that song, not Travis Tritt. Uh, all due respect to Tritt's version, which is quite good. But I'm going to wait this out, and we're going to see what's playing next. Okay, we have a classic from Ronnie Millsap. It's Smoky Mountain Rain. I look forward to getting to that one with you in two weeks. If you get there before I do, go ahead and search for Nashville Anthems on Instagram or Facebook and drop me a line. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and don't forget to tell a friend about us. Bye now. I gotta go. I think I was supposed to meet somebody.